you see, I'm writing in the style of, of an Indonesian folk tune, so this is not one you've heard. Yeah. So if it, it sounds familiar, it, it's not. Yeah, I but this, normally people would do. But there they do. You see? That's only one direction I see myself going, and another one would be the Western music of the United States. And you say, what's the Western music? Like country and Western? No, no, no. In the um, 1860s, 70s, when the uh, people that reside in those horses out west, the cowboys would come back and sing. By the way, you know, tree and Roy Rogers. No, no, that's the. That's back in the saddle. No, no, it's very commercial. I'm talking about ones that people don't know about. Because that was very close to the Indonesian, original Indonesian music to begin with, you know, and it's. Sure. Can you give me an example of the. Pure, the traditional well, Western music. Be, this, all I know is yes, uh, you know, yes, exactly. You know, say this is in tune. You'd normally hear. You know, that's normal right. sort of yeah. thing. But they would do. I see. That's it. Is very similar. It to is, and music. you hear the difference. Yes. So, yes. Squarely in the hands of those who know computers not for what they are, but for everything they have the potential to be. You know who said that? No, no, I don't. You did. Page 36, closing paragraph. Computers aren't the thing. They're the thing that gets us to the thing. Dandy baby. My Illuminati lady. My undercut hairdo that I've styled up with gravy. A wise man once said that photography was the opiate of the masses. Bruppeting wah. Bruppeting wah. Dance upon my grave. And I'll download Seesaw. That's right. Seesaw. It's the app for finding gallery shows, baby. Plan your day on the Lower East Side. Look up what's on view in the big showrooms in Chelsea. Get a list or a map view of the exciting project spaces in Bushwick. If you haven't downloaded the app just yet, fuck you. That's right. You heard me. Download the Seesaw app for art gallery visits or fuck you. Boing boing. 
my butt is made of grass and neoliberalism is the lawnmower. Chattanooga chili cheese fries. A painting of them, that is. A large painting of Chattanooga chili cheese fries. You're gonna buy it for a ton of cash. Welcome back to another episode of the Humor and the Abject podcast, you whole millennial ass greedlers. This is Stefan Lee, the podcast studio manager. We've got a lovely episode for you this week with curator, writer, and Marto's gallery director Ebony L. Haynes. We here at Humor and the Abject have been longtime fans of Ebony and it's wonderful that she was able to come by to talk about her work at the gallery and as an independent curator. You've heard enough from me, my giggly honeybees. Let's turn it over to your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. I'm Ira Glass. Welcome to Jackass. It's episode 53 of the Humor in the Abject podcast. I'm your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. This week on Humor in the Abject, I have my buddy, my pal, Ebony L. Haynes. Ebony is a curator, a writer. She is the director of Martos Gallery, as well as Shoot the Lobster, another space that Martos Gallery runs. She curated the knockout show Invisible Man when Martos reopened in Chinatown last year, and also put together this amazing show by the artist Jessica Vaughn that was a solo exhibition there. I wrote a little review of that that's on Human the Abject that I hope you will take a look at. I'll put a link to it in the episode description. Uh, I've been trying to get Ebony on an episode since I started. She helped put together a show that I got to do with uh, some pals at Shoot the Lobster almost like about a year and a half ago, I'd say at this point. It was, it was quite a bit ago, but she is great, super thoughtful, um, one of the people that I respect the most in New York, and I'm so glad that I finally got to have her by the kitchen, and she braved the crazy blizzard this week to come through. So uh, without further ado, here is my conversation with Ebony L. Haynes. Ebony L. Haynes, welcome to Humor in the Abject. Thank you for having me. Thank you dearly for braving mm. this most recent nor'easter and coming by the kitchen today. We're recording on uh, Wednesday the 21st here, so the schools are canceled, but the podcast is not. It must go on. <laughs> you are a true supporter of the arts. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> um, and I can't believe that you're finally here. I feel like we've been talking about doing this since like late last spring when I started this. Yes. And so I'm really happy that we finally got you here, but I know you're a very busy woman. That's okay. I like to make time for the arts. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good. Um, so now you're the director of Martos Gallery here in New York. Yes. And, uh, and shoot the lobster. And shoot the lobster. Okay. So let me try to get this right. There's a, there's a gallery in Chinatown. There's a brick and, there's a brick and mortar space also called shoot the lobster in the Lower East Side. Another physical shoot the lobster in Los Angeles that was previously a Martos Gallery outpost, but Martos <laughs> used to be in Chelsea and shoot the lobster was a pop-up itinerant program in the back of it. Do I have that all correct? That is correct, <laughs> <Okay>. sir. 
I'm just trying to I'm trying to get the Martos extended universe. That uh, is correct. All, yes. All on board here. Yeah. Um, so you came on in the gallery. You came on as director of Martos proper when the gallery uh, relocated from Chelsea to Chinatown. But you were already involved with programming at Shoot the Lobster before that. In some so um, it's a bit <clears throat> the timeline is different. Uh, well, it's murky because of building the new gallery. Uh-huh. I came into Martos while they were still in Chelsea. Uh huh. Um, a month after I joined up, they closed and uh, went along with their plans to relocate and build a new space in Chinatown. So we didn't have a Martos brick and mortar for a year, but I was technically the director of the gallery. Okay. Whoa. So we did art fairs yeah. and we still, you know, I still had studio visits and tried to sell art with no space. Um, and then I was also the director of Shoot the Lobster. And we were working out of Shoe the Lobster while building the new Martos. So I started programming things physically in the Shoe the Lobster space after so much time had gone by building that I just, we had to turn it from our office back into a gallery. Like there was just nowhere to have a program. And what's the difference between Martos and Shoot the Lobster? I mean, I know, but for for someone who's listening who isn't (laughs) super A lot of people don't know. A lot of people don't know. Lay it on me. The difference is um, we don't. So at Martos, we represent artists. At Shoe the Lobster, we don't. They're both commercial spaces. Some people think Shoe the Lobster is like a project and non-for-profit, but it is definitely for-profit. Um, it's just more of a... Uh, exper- I mean, experimental sounds cheesy, but uh, kind of ad hoc, definitely more contemporary. Like I w- probably wouldn't show in a state at Shoot the Lobster. That would be fun, though. It could, you know, I've shown artists of all ages, but I mean, um, it's really sort of a place that I like to encourage artists to do things they've thought about doing and have never been given the opportunity. So maybe it's a show that, maybe, you know, the artist that shows at Shoot the Lobster has a bigger, what people consider a bigger blue chip gallery, but they have an idea that might be better realized at Shoot the Lobster. Yeah. You know? And it seems like the shows can be shorter. They can be one night. They can yeah. be these different types mm-hmm. of things. And we is can the do book launches. Re- we've done readings. Yeah. Is um, the music, vibe at venues. the LA one the same? Vibe at the LA one is the same for sure. And I just try and keep it to West Coast artists. Cool. And the LA one. Very cool. Yeah. Um, and prior to Martos, you, you were with Mitchell, Innes, and Nash for That's a correct. while. For a little and while. Other stuff, I imagine. I mean, I was at Michelinus and Nash. Um, it was great there. I got to work with my favorite artist, Poe Bell. Um, and I didn't really plan to leave. It was just the opportunity to be a director of yeah. two spaces came up. So I, I left, <laughs> but I've always, um, I'm Canadian and I'm here on an O one one visa. Mm-hmm. So it requires me to fulfill artistic excellence is yes. the byline of that yes. visa. I've, I've written a couple of uh, <laughs> yeah. like support letters for folks who are doing that. Too. Yeah. yeah. So I have to maintain a certain amount of extracurricular yeah. activities like publishing or curating outside of my gallery. You have to be excellent. I have to be excellent. Yeah. They, they Google you at the border. <laughs> are you from <laughs> Toronto? I'm from Toronto. I'm, I grew up just outside of Toronto, about okay. 20 minutes outside in this small town called Brampton. Brampton? A lot of famous rappers are coming out of there. Really? Yeah. I grew up further north than you in the United States. I grew up oh, in northern yeah, Michigan. that's possible. <laughs> <laughs> that's I, always like to, I always like to throw that in a Canadian yeah, space. North, I'm more Arctic than you are. You're more Arctic than me. Uh, Although my family's from four hours north of Toronto, so it's oh, pretty wow. Arctic. Okay, yeah, definitely. <laughs> wow. Um, 
So I want to talk a little bit about the show that Martos reopened with last year when the mm-hmm. Chinatown space opened. And that's a group exhibition that you curated called Invisible Man after Ralph Ellison's novel from 1947. And I felt like it was a pretty strong statement right out of the gate uh, in terms of your vision. And could you talk a little bit about that show and what you were aiming sure. for? Yeah. Um, I felt like a lot was at stake with opening our first show in the new space as a new director. Also, Martos had a a program history where they didn't traditionally represent artists. Like there wasn't a list Mm -hmm. until I came on and, but there were definitely artists that they worked with over a long period of time. It just wasn't so formalized. And, um, so for one, just practically it seemed odd to choose an artist to open with. Yeah. Um, I didn't want it to be a new artist and I also was excited to have the stage to, um, the soapbox actually, not the stage. (laughs) Uh, and it's an idea for a show that I'd had for a long time <clears throat> in that all of the artists are of color mm-hmm. and there are no clear aesthetic markers. Um, you know, like there is some, something that is a black art aesthetic, mm-hmm. I believe, um, that people, you know, have written about and I think it does exist, but there's nothing about these artists and the work I chose that would, <clears throat> you know, be markers of a black art object. Okay. Yeah. So there were conceptual, minimal objects, sculpture mostly, um, a few paintings. And uh, also, you know, I think names of artists are clearly markers too. So Yeah. Um, all and, of... and who was in the show? Can you run sure. that down real quick? Yeah, the show was uh, Torquase Dyson, uh, Keore Ojo, Pope L, and Jessica Vaughn. So, and my name's Ebony Haynes. <laughs> <laughs> so we're all black. nice um and they were all artists really it was such a labor of love they were all artists that i'd been following for years Mm -hmm. i you know i did my first studio visit with coyote in 2012 jessica vaughn 2014 you know i worked with popel turquoise i mean it's something i've wanted to do so i got the go-ahead and wanted to play with visibility and invisibility within this um the confines of this art structure I've been given specifically the commercial art gallery Mm -hmm. and how black artists or just artists of color are more invisible, especially in a commercial sense. Not even they're more visible institutionally and uh, art practitioners in commercial spaces like directors and salespeople, um, even just gallery assistants are often not of color. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to make it a little, comment although it was a little subversive for most people (laughs) well it got i feel like the show deservedly got a lot of press i wouldn't say that i was surprised by that were you how did you receive all of that attention were you surprised that you got that much were you kind of anticipating it or do you feel like people got the show when they wrote about it uh i i'm not asking you to throw anybody under the bus (laughs) but just like was at large did it seem like people understood what you were trying to present that's such a good question because um i didn't i haven't really thought about it in a long time and i i think i expected a a bit not more of a reaction i I was really happy with the press i got i think everyone who wrote about it really gave it a lot of time and um were thoughtful about their um interpretations but i think you know i guess i was hoping people wouldn't skirt around issues Uh as much as they did and especially at a time when artists and 
friends of mine, you know, people that we both know were getting really vocal about a lack of a voice. And so I really tried to be a voice yeah. and wanted the artist I chose to be a voice along with me. But then the people who wrote about it and not to their, to a fault or anything, but it might be hard to. There's some sort of, <laughs> if any, I don't know if that's picking that up, but there's some sort of reconstruction going on upstairs. But parade going on. Anyway, yeah, we're having a parade upstairs, but sorry. Um, that's okay. I feel like um, it might, you know, I wanted people to really just be kind of direct to speak frankly just speak frankly Mm -hmm. exactly you're a black director and this is a show of all black artists Mm -hmm. at a time when artists are drawing trying to draw attention to a lack of inclusion um i guess there was no you know one i had one interview with vice with antoine Sergent, which was great but i guess i I, you know, Sean, at the same time, I'm happy that didn't happen because then it became about the show mm-hmm. and the work spoke yeah. for itself. So it's a weird push and pull, it's weird, right? It is weird. I wanted the art to shine. I wanted it to be, you know, look at these fantastic abstract paintings. Look at this weird installation of train seats. Mm-hmm. There's a couch in here. Let's talk about it. Yeah. So I, yeah, that's a hard, it is a hard push and pull. I'm happy that people wrote about it as art objects and a curated exhibition. I do wish there was maybe a little bit more of a discussion about what it meant or yeah, what, what it signified what it as it a signified gesture. For, especially for pe- artists of color yeah. and people who work with me that are of color. Maybe I want, maybe I should have had my own little forum. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting though. I think that there's a, and I'm speaking about this as somebody who, you know, tries to write about work and things like that is that I bet too on the part of writers and, you know, I don't know everybody who wrote about the show and things like that, but mm. there's a tension I think that's palpable, but it, I'm, I'm interested in this idea of speaking frankly, because it's kind of like to skirt around something mm-hmm. or to pretend like it's not there, that it's just a given is, uh, just as maybe counterproductive. And I'm not calling the writers who wrote about it that, but, mm-hmm. but there's a difficulty in just saying, outright like let's say if you're a white writer to be like this is a show of black artists by a black gallery director and it means this because there's this like total devastating fear sure. that you're prescribing something onto it or like you're reading too much into it and but but it's funny because if we just were if we just leveled with each other mm. that might be a little easier to have that conversation like because clearly that's what the show was mm. right yeah i, I mean, mean it's called invisible man for exactly like, <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's called that for a reason and i wanted people to make the reference very quickly yeah. and hopefully they understood what it meant but you're right i mean a lot of the writers were not of color but some of them were and they mm. did a great i mean i think the people i think the writers of color who who um reviewed the show I almost feel like their choice not to speak frankly was also to empower the show as just a show. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, like we don't need to discuss this group of people that they're proud of. You know, they were really proud of me and proud of the show, but didn't want to just say, oh, here's a great black show by a black director. So I appreciate that too. I think I just Mm -hmm. personally, to answer your question again (laughs) about the response I got, I think personally I would have liked to have more conversations with people on a one to even one to one level. Yeah. Um, like artists and curators and other art practitioners I respect who are of color who felt frustrated at a time. I think I would have liked to just talk to them and see what they thought about the show. Yeah. It's funny because it's like to try to think about contextually in a larger socio cultural scope, if like 
on the one hand, that show should be able to be discussed simply by the merits of the work contained within it and not necessarily by identitarian factors mm-hmm. kind of things. But let's be real about the context that we live in, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. you know, 20 years from now, who knows? Maybe it'll just that will just be matter of fact, right? That all of the artists are artists of color. But right now it feels charged. And so but I think, yeah, I don't know. It's it's a it's a sticky question, but one that has to be discussed is how do you navigate that? How do you talk about it? Uh, especially as somebody whose job it is to write about work, to document the culture. I mean, you're basically canonizing things and mm-hmm. creating the the historical record. Mm-hmm. Besides, I mean, the gallery, of course, is creating one through the documentation and stuff, but the, the writing that comes around it too, yeah, it's such a weird... I don't know, but you're, but it's good that you're presenting stuff that forces that to happen, you know? Yeah, and it's... Um you know shoot the lobster i also kind of planned the programming you know one of the first shows i did i wanted to make sure there was an artist of color who i like you know can't you can't just throw any artist of color in there just because i'd also hate when galleries try and reach a quota (laughs) 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 so Mm -hmm. there are plenty of artists of color that are i personally identify with and like yeah so i wanted to make sure one of the first shows i did was you know a artist of color was rocky ford mm-hmm. and i wanted to make sure that was the same with invisible man for um for me i wanted to really start off so people knew what was important for me yeah what are the i feel like your curatorial vision and your and your directorial work as a gallerist and things like that it seems like that novel in particular the themes of it informs a lot of the way that you think about looking at artists at their art, but also about the larger scope of kind of where they exist and how they move through, I guess what we call the capital A art world, because mm-hmm. you, you work in the capital A art world. There's certainly all these fringe factions and things like that, that I'm sure you're also interested in and are very interesting. But is that when, when did you first start to kind of connect the dots between the art world in particular and Ellison's novel? Um, as soon as I felt like it, you know, towards the end of construction of the gallery space, it felt really do or die. Uh It had been a year of building. I felt like it was my cotillion, you know, like it's time to come out to the world. (laughs) Um, so I felt a little bit of pressure and I also didn't want to regret my decisions and I had been very heated, you know, things were heated at the time. It was like, you know, the Whitney Biennial, Dana Schutz Mm -hmm. painting, Hannah Black, um, a lot of conversations with friends, which is why I think I wish that those had picked up again later, but that's an aside. Um, so with Ellison's novel and the capital A art world that you, um, describe and I agree with, it's really, it was the systemic, it was really, you know, that novel for me is all about systemic racism and, that's racism that goes unseen mm-hmm. most of the time. Right. And I think that happens in this art world that I work in where simple inclusion for a moment makes people think everything's okay. Yeah. Optic diversity. Exactly. Like, yeah. Kind of, yeah. It's like you said, but it's a quota system. It's a quota system. And I yeah. think I've worked in institutions where it's like, that's a constant point of conversation and it's not a, it's not an easy one to have. It's it's, not, re- it's yeah. really difficult, but the but the problem is is that I think if people can move the 
the larger critique of the systemic problem away from themselves. I, I think, mm-hmm. like, especially as a white person, I'm so used to being centered in everything. Mm-hmm. And so when somebody says, you know, it took a long time to stop getting upset when somebody was like, white people be like this. Like, why would I get upset about it? You know what I mean? <laughs> Except where it implicates me. And then clearly, like, then maybe I need to examine something yeah. if it's making me upset. But yeah, I think institutions, too. It's it's funny. I, I guess I in the back of my head knew that but didn't really think about it until you said a little bit ago that that institutionally artists of color are are more and more represented Mm -hmm. almost in like a spectacle sense but in commercial gallery contexts when it comes down to like basically like exchange of capital showroom versus exchange of cultural capital and like museum boistering kind of thing it's you know, can I swear on this podcast? You can say whatever the like, fuck you want. Fuck that cultural capital <laughs> bullshit. You know, like artists got to eat. Cultural Bitcoin. You know, I mean, what? Because you're a, a black artist, you're, you're, you know, subscribed to a life of residencies and grants. No. And maybe yeah. getting in a, in a painting show at the Whitney if you're lucky, but you have no commercial gallery. Yeah. You're not, you probably are teaching or doing something as mm-hmm. a day job. You know, I mean, that's, it's just not fair. It's not fair to be underpaid in any in any respect, like aspect of the art world, whether you're an artist or a dealer of color or an assistant, you know. I remember hearing some people that I thought before I moved to New York um, of as very famous black artists when I would, you know, finally be like, I'm going to add them on Facebook, you know, or I'm going to add this person I like admire or like is yeah. a famous person or whatever. And then I would see when they would put something up and they'd just be like, I can't even get a fucking teaching position right now. Like, this is insane. And I don't have a gal. And I'm just like, but you're famous. I know. You're in the, you have the big you museum the thing sh- over you there that with thing. that other thing. But yeah, and that public thing. But it does not equate. Yeah, but yeah. it does not, it doesn't operate correctly under late capitalism where this person is actually being compensated for their labor. You're right. They become like a, they're like jewelry totally. on the museum. <laughs> and I, and I've had really like, you know, I play this role of like the dealer gangster and I'll be like talking to my black artist friends and be like, how much are you selling this for? And I'll try, you know, be like, no, no, you got to increase the price. Look at the market, not just your market, but the market. I mean, I think, um, you know, white artists are a lot of them, not all of them, maybe just some artists in general are more aware of their worth or what they want. You know, it's a business. It's a, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's capital. You're exchanging goods for money. So don't sell yourself short and don't think that someone's doing you a favor by buying your art. There's a huge market out there that operates and you don't need to, you know, not be making money either. Well, I think very few people who, and no shade of people who buy art, thank you, but very few (laughs) people who buy art at a level where it's going to have a a real fiscal impact on the livelihood of the artist are doing it to do the artist a favor necessarily. I mean, that's true. They're a handful, right? There are some who want to help the artists. Yeah. And who like want to live with the work, but you know, a lot of people, it's like speculative valuation of like, what is this investment doing for Mm -hmm. me to Mm -hmm. ideally down the road results? Is it a good investment? Yeah. And that's, I think, but that's just, them's the breaks. But yeah, to be able to enfranchise the artists that you're working with. I mean, I think I've talked to a couple different people lately on the podcast who work at galleries. And that's been, um, I think, a, a 
an interesting and eye-opening thing for me as like those roles that people play and how they are helping to enfranchise and shift the way that markets function mm-hmm. from really within the system of capitalism. And it's so easy to just be like, oh, fuck a gallery, you know, or, know. or be like all punk rock about it and be like, screw that place or something. But but that's not the reality. Where I the mean, hell, I, how else how is somebody going to make money? I know. Like, <laughs> I do some, sometimes, every once in a while I do a like... Um, at like guest speaker uh-huh. for a university or something, mostly via friends that are still in Canada and want to, want to talk to somebody in New York. And the first time I did it, it was a grad program, um, a studio program. And those, the questions were along these lines of like kind of selling out, uh, you know, how can you monetize art? Like they just also it's Canada, so there's yeah. Were they going for free <laughs> to school? Basically, I mean that's I mean that's an interesting that's a very interesting because, dynamic. Because you know shift. Canada has a totally different art gallery, commercial art gallery structure. It's a little bit more insular, and there's a lot of um, government funding yeah. for the arts across the board, whether it's commercial or not. But to think that you're selling out because you're selling your work, yeah, is just it's not. It's not true. I know. I just did a, I did like a Skype visit with this class in uh, Portland, Oregon. And I said something that I didn't make this up. I don't remember where I read it, but basically like trying to reinforce to a group of people who are having that existential crisis of being an art student of like, I'm supposed to be a creative and I'm supposed to communicate these things visually that can't be articulated in writing or through speaking. Uh, how could I monetize that? Like what a bastardization or like whatever mm. of what I'm doing or something. And I, at one point said that, you know, whatever the line is, it's like, you know, uh, making money doesn't make you a capitalist. Yeah. Like, like, (laughs) like you're probably not a capitalist. Like you You just have to survive. There's a really big (laughs) difference between, between, yeah, like, (laughs) like people who are literal capitalists and then people who just live in countries that that's the system and uh, have rent and food and other things like that. So yeah, it's really funny. I mean, who... Oh, my God. I don't remember who I was talking to recently, but they were just, like, laughing about thinking about themselves in their early 20s and just being like, should I... What if I get the opportunity to sell out? Like, should I sell... And it's just like, what the fuck are you talking about? Sell... What, what are you, else? What are you selling what else, out? Yeah, what are you s- selling out to, yeah, I guess? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, and of course, there's, like, you could compromise your ethics or do this or that or not make the work that you want to make something like that but if you're making your art and there, and people are interested yeah. in it and you can support yourself on it then like make that's your the money goal. that's like, what <laughs> has to happen you may have noticed the classic selfie is going through an artistic renaissance the app of the moment matches a photo of your face with your lookalike from a famous painting and as dean reynolds reports this is raising privacy concerns take a pose who hasn't thought of themselves from time to time as a real piece of art? And now, thanks to Google's month-old feature on its arts and culture app, our humble selfies can be matched to what the app says is a double, probably hanging on a museum wall somewhere. Yet in Illinois and Texas, you can't use that selfie feature because Google removed it, and it won't really say why, but it appears it was avoiding a conflict with both states that have tough laws on biometric identification, using faces, fingers, or eyes to identify someone. Those are things you can't change. Chris Dorr's law firm has sued tech companies for biometric usage and says the law 
requires Google and those other tech companies to explain how the data is being collected, what it's being used for, and to obtain consent from the user. You can't replace your face like you could in a credit card. So once you have given this information to a company, um, you are at risk of what they may do with that and where it may go from there. Google says it doesn't use your selfie for anything else and only keeps it for the time it takes to search for matches. Over the last few days, the company says more than 30 million selfies have been uploaded using its app, about 450,000 an hour. I guess I'll just have to use my imagination. Chicago artist Julia Gettler thinks the app is great if she could use it. And I started scrolling through, looking for it. And it's nowhere? It's nowhere. She thinks the security concerns about the app are overblown. I think it's a great idea to spark interest in people and make art accessible. Now, not all these matches are exact. While a network anchorman can surely savor his resemblance to the biblical David, a correspondent who obtained his match surreptitiously is paired with this 18th century Venetian artist. Oh well, love the earrings. Dean Reynolds, CBS News, Chicago. Now, speaking of Canada, mm -hmm. a little over a year ago, you curated a show at Cooper Cole Gallery, which is in Toronto. Yes. And that was uh, called Freud's Mouth. Yes. Um, okay. I want to talk about that show and I want to talk about what the oral fixation in Freud means in relationship to the show. But first, I wanted to mention that in the press release, you had stated that you'd curated artists who produce what you would indeed call identity art but that it wasn't this kind of like 1993 identity art. I think the quote was your mom's 1993 <laughs> identity art. Uh, but so people use that term a lot, uh, especially people in positions of power to like malign or marginalize work. Mm -hmm. And you used it really intentionally. You put it right in the press release and you mm -hmm. said like, yes, they do make this, but it's not what you think. Mm -hmm. um, what is the, what's that? weird relationship between identity art from the 90s and what you were choosing to show um well i just wanted to preface my answer with a small anecdote about my graduate school experience in toronto okay wait where was that at ocad ontario college of art and design and um i thought i was going to do a um art criticism thesis about public art i used to be really into i used to work in music and mm -hmm. you know graffiti was a huge part of my life i was kind of interested in these public spaces and very quickly i realized i am very black <laughs> here <laughs> i think it took one semester and i was like holy shit i am within a, the college within the college okay. I read a case study about Fred Wilson mm -hmm. and it was my first exposure to somebody who could um, do some kind of institutional, uh, you know, like when his, he was mining the museum. Yeah, yeah. What's the word I'm looking for? Institutional. Critique. Critique. Yeah. There we go. Well, it seems like we don't even want to use that word. We don't even want to use like that word anymore. I know. Intentionally I know. <laughs> But then I like I started trying to talk to my classmates and my professors about things, and it was just you know God love them OCA. I really, I do. It sounds so cliche. I had a great experience, <laughs> but it was very white. There were no yeah. black professors at all. There was no other black student 
um, in my whole cohort in like the two years. Yeah. Um, so I switched from public art to something I called a post-black aesthetic. Mm-hmm. And by the towards the end of my second, you know, as I was writing it, or the end of my first year, I was told that they thought that, you know, the graduate department and my advisors thought I should take another semester to um, basically what happened is I wrote an entire fucking black art history from the Harlem Renaissance uh-huh. to, uh, you know, 1993. Okay. Wait, they want to do like offer you another semester or would did it feel like to... they were holding you like, no, a, like a hold back? I felt like everybody was un, not confident in um, hearing me defend an aesthetic called post race Mm. in the way I was describing it. And it felt sort of like I had to show and prove that first I've done, I I can account for the history going back almost a hundred years of black art, which for me at the time felt so ridiculous. Like why the fuck do I have to talk about what happened during the Harlem Renaissance? Uh, Eau Claire is a package. Hold on. Oh, okay. uh, no problem. Uh, no. Uh, sorry for the interruption. We had a package <laughs> delivery, but you were talking about having to account for all of the history from the Harlem Renaissance right. until 1993. Yeah. And then and- being put on you or yeah I felt you know I was really angry at the time and I realized in hindsight it's because um a few reasons one none of my committee my my advisor committee were they're all white Mm -hmm. uh number two to be fair I hadn't studied art before this graduate program I studied anthropology and music in my undergrad Mm -hmm. and then I fucked off for a long time and just did a lot of other things that had nothing to do with what I studied Um, so the first art history class I took was in grad school and I audited the class in the summer because I was going to end up being a TA. So anyways, I had to do this history work and I was really angry and I'm like, why do I have to, the reason I'm writing about a post or just the idea of what a post race aesthetic might be, you know, this was during the time of Obama's first term. Everybody's getting so tense. Uh Like, do you know about the Whitney Biennial, 1993. Do you know what happened? The identity biennial. Do you know about Afrofuturism? Mm-hmm. Do you know what happened? You know, I was like, okay, you know, I'm thankful that they made me do it now, but I really felt um, that it it was wrong to make a, a the current generation. You know, whether you're avowing or disavow, however you want to identify with some kind of moment, that should be your choice. Mm-hmm. There's something happening culturally in my moment that has a black president in a country that is visibly more powerful than my own country. Mm -hmm. And I want to see what that means for something I'm studying, which is visual art and our visual culture. And I I just want to explore that. Yeah. So when I said your mom's 1993 art, it was a little jab at being in Toronto Mm -hmm. and, you know, doing something that, um, I don't know, it, the artists considered it, you know, they were very personal works and I guess I considered identity art because it is yeah. also how is any art, not identity art? Yeah, no, I that's mean, the, absolutely. you know, yeah. I mean, so there was also a clear mix. This was probably one of my first ashamedly 
you know, carefully selected quota of artists in that I didn't want there to be too few women. Mm-hmm. I didn't want there to be all white men. And I wanted there to be a conversation, you know, the works needed to speak to each other. So not your mom's 1993 identity art was, um, really kind of to look at how Adrian Rubenstein identifies her body in a bushel of broccoli mm-hmm. or, you know, Hamishi Farah is stuck in Australia because he was turned away at the border. Um, he's an artist of color and, oh, and I remember that. Yeah. And Whoa. drew things yeah. on the internet that kind of, you know, like, I mean, there's, it goes deep. I just mean like everybody had was, you know, younger and had a really specific point of view of how they identify things in the world and how that in, is interpreted in their art. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I just wanted to speak. They don't have to talk about how it references, you know, Rumer Bearden. And if it does, that's fine, but it doesn't have to. I just wanted to include artists who kind of are making things that they're responding to of the moment. Yeah. That's funny too. I wonder if the, um, the faculty that you're talking about are the people on a committee who are bringing this up or saying, Hey, do you know about this? Do you know about this? I wonder if that's their almost like singular point of reference for art made by people of color, mm. um, that yeah. made an impact. I mean, I, I'm, this is a shitty analogy, but I think about, the teachers that I had in undergrad whose um, sort of perception of uh, contemporary art was pretty much like Andy Warhol. Yeah. I mean, what they were just, I mean, it was like, there's a moment and they're like, well, this is when it like, blah, 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 and then people, it's new. Right. It was like Andy Warhol. And before that, there was impressionism. Yeah. <laughs> and there's like, the, but there's these humongous leaps without accounting for like the the micro specificities of different lived experiences and different movements and other things like that, that have mm-hmm. happened. So, yeah. And that's then, a... and then having experienced that, I do feel that there's a whole other, you know, I had a 180 where I think it's very important for artists of color to know what happened before. Absolutely. For because all artists. For all artists. Yeah. I mean, um, if you think, you know, as a identify, like, you know, self-identified black woman, as a director of a gallery, if I think I'm the only one who had to struggle, I'm not. So it's just important to, you know, to keep those histories alive. Um, so my, I'm not as angsty about it as I was when I was told I had to take another semester to learn the history, but, (laughs) but yeah, but to be sort of, um, to be able to build upon it, right. That's like, that's like why to have the history too, but not to couch, but not to couch everything in it. Mm -hmm. And it's not 1993 anymore. Yeah. Absolutely. So that show, but what was the, and, and I said, I want to ask you about this, oh, yeah. the, the Freud part of it. So the, the Freud part was really selfish. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> the Freud part was, it shows um, Freud's mouth, Freud's mouth. <laughs> so Freud, um, died of jaw cancer mm-hmm. and he was really, it's just so, you know, he had the five stages of self, of, you know, the it of identifying and one of them was the first one was oral yeah. fix, you know, like oral fixation on on stuff. Yeah. And he, on stuff. and he smoked, you know, like 20 cigars a day <laughs> and refused to give it up. Even when they told him it was yeah. going to kill him. And I had a really, um, I've had extensive trauma to my mouth really since I was a kid. Wow. And, um, I guess I just, I, I used to like think of my mouth as this kind of like almost like a monster. Like it felt very mechanical and clinical and people's hands were always in it. Uh-huh. And there were surgeries and like wires and gauze. Like I felt, it felt kind of like not a part of me. Yeah. And then, um, in one of my later surgeries, I learned about Freud and his mouth. And then I just got really, 
fixated no pun intended (laughs) nice (laughs) so i just i just thought it was interesting that he created this whole thing about how you people form their identity um and like oral fixation is part of this like first stage of self-realization and Mm. i was having all this oral trauma and i wondered what that did to me yeah what that did to my you know forming my identity yeah it's interesting too to think about being the curator and you are kind of like you're the mouth for the exhibition sure yeah kind of you're the you're the speaking head that sort of contextualizes and puts everything out into the world yeah weird weird freud's mouth (laughs) that's dirty (laughs) that's cool um what about the the show that you did so after invisible man you and and you said you had known or done a studio visit with jessica vaughn the Mm -hmm. artist in like 2014 Mm -hmm. so this has been several years that Mm -hmm. you and jessica have been in contact with one another and that was jessica's first solo show in new york um it was her first commercial gallery solo show okay in new york city actually i think it was more like 2015 that doesn't it doesn't matter but um, (laughs) um, it's all a blur but yeah um so you did she was doing the lmcc residency right and that's where i first saw her work and then she'd been in a few in a few group shows in 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 around new york and that was in like October to December was receipt of a form receipt of a form. Yeah. Yeah. And so, cause I know that people, that was one of the, in the press around, um, <clears throat> excuse me, around invisible man, people responded a lot to Jessica's installation, which they did. was the, um, sort of found used upcycled, whatever you want to call mm-hmm. it, um, public transit seats, mm-hmm. which, you know, are or are not from Chicago. I mean, it's kind of, it's interesting how she plays with how much, you know, mm-hmm. in, in relationship to them. But how did you approach bringing Jessica's work into the space now that it had already sort of occupied it, but in one sense, and then you, now it was the whole, the whole shebang. Yeah. So for the invisible man show, she had those L train seats. They were, the seats were all from Chicago, mm-hmm. but then, so for her solo show, she started, um, she had some sculptures that had a, upholstery, the kind of the negative runoffs of upholstering seats. And she'd made sculptures out of them. I guess I just, uh, I wanted her presence to not be completely like different from her group show experience, but I wanted it to be a, pl- a time for her to elaborate. Yeah. So we had a new installation of those seats. It was smaller, but still a part of the conversation. And she was able to let people in a bit more into her practice really was, the, was the gist of it. Yeah. And Oh, and for people who are listening, who are uh, New Yorkers, the, the L train in Chicago is not like the oh, L right. it means it's, it's not el- the gray it's, line. It's elevated. elevated it's, train, yeah. it's the people mover. Yeah. <laughs> <It's everybody else>. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the way that the, the seats were set up in Jessica's solo show was you didn't see them until you turned around almost mm-hmm. to exit. Right. So it was kind That's of right. like the, you kind of have to walk through them mm-hmm. yeah. to get out. And I mean, I thought that was really elegant in that, she's really concerned with um, or interested in how bodies move around and how materials move around. And uh, so you have to move, you, you are in the space and you are forced to move around. There's kind of like a maze. There was a maze of things on the floor. You have to go in to turn around and see, you know, invisible bodies in the seats. Um, Yeah. I thought I was really happy with that show. Yeah. It seems like the, a lot of the artists that, 
you're working with the in the practices we keep using this <clears throat> these terms around visibility and things like that and there was a from uh maybe three maybe more years ago you'd written a little piece for uh like a mocha cleveland mm-hmm. exhibition mm-hmm. um and was it who was that was that the there was a couple i did for cleveland i think some, michelangelo loveless i think there's is it a kevin beasley, kevin beasley? Bit? I yeah did and, kevin beasley, and yeah. in it you use kind of like the anecdote of the the simultaneous frustration and reward of looking at a magic eye yeah like kind of staring at this thing that requires you to look in a different way. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was, the, I mean, that's from years ago, but then the way that you're talking about Invisible Man and the other things, it seems like this really consistent thread in the way that you think about artists is about literal visibility, about like the visibility of the objects, but also these larger structural navigation visibilities or where somebody is in, how they're presented, all this stuff like that. It's It's kind of cool to see how that goes for everything and how your language around it changes but you can keep pulling these like cultural anecdotes from things as sort of canonized and and as important as invisible man or something is like oh holy shit i hadn't thought about that in 20 years about like a magic magic eye eye. but that that same kind of and and it made me think about looking differently especially with jessica's show that it took um it really rewarded patient viewing like oh, if, that's nice if you to hear. sat with the show and like thought about it and looked at the things and there are things to investigate that it started to reveal itself mm-hmm. i think in a way that if you just walk through it's just like well this is kind of interesting you know i mean it was aesthetically really successful but there was all this other stuff these layers below it i think that mm-hmm. very much after i read that magic eye thing i was like that's what i was doing when i went to the show. i was like <laughs> staring at things trying to like pull out and then you notice all of the other things that are in it um i mean maybe that's why your take on the show was so wonderful oh stop <laughs> <laughs> no that was really it fun really to write about. but but it was fun to write about that show and it was fun to walk around it with you and talk because i think you and i both have <clears throat> this other experience that i know uh you had sort of described that jessica does too which is inside of the structural elements of like administrative Mm -hmm. parts of institutions and organizations and kind of the stuff that goes on behind the scenes. Um, And so it's interesting to think about how she aestheticizes those things and does something different with them. And then the way that you through a curatorial practice also highlight those things, but through a different kind of way to stoke the conversations. Um, It's everybody just kind of has these different like approaches to it, but it's a, yeah, I don't know. It, it's cool to see somebody curating a show or organizing it that their practice over time already kind of links up with the artist. I mean, it makes sense that when you saw Jessica's work, you were kind of like, yeah. Well, it makes sense now that you're saying it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you intuited it. And that's like I the... guess so. I mean, and I guess I, when you say like, you know, my my curatorial style is looking at larger, something a bit more broad and trying to figure it out and work within this kind of structure... And I think that is really an apt observation because I feel like I'm working. I'm trying to figure out how to navigate in this structure all the time in a way that makes me really angry most of the time. And I think um, challenging my viewers or, you know, whatever I'm doing, working on whether I'm writing something or curating something, I feel the need to challenge them a bit more because I I also feel like a bit of a token already. Mm Mm-hmm. I feel like I don't want the artists to, I don't want their work to suffer because they're at the hands of a black, what somebody might just see as a black curator. Mm-hmm. So I really, I, I do think I really work to try and make sure 
the work has a platform to stand on that is not just black. Yeah. It's God. I think a lot about that. Did you ever see the, the biopic about Selena? Yes. Do you remember when Selena's dad is talking about sort of, and I don't remember if it's when she's sort of trying to cross over or something or bridge between like Spanish language and English or something, something related to that. But he says something to the effect of we've got to be twice as American for the Americans and twice as Mexican for the Mexicans, like in order to navigate these kind of mm-hmm. structures and things like that. Mm-hmm. And yeah. That's, and like I say that, and that I just mean, gets put on you as like the, as the mouthpiece for the show it or does. whatever that you, and some, you know, and I say that not to just, you know, say that I'm against an, a curator of color wanting to use that as a platform because it's very valid. You know, if you want to, to shine light on something that has to do with racial issues and by all means you should, it's really at the, you know, it's really about Freud's mouth. It's really about me mm-hmm. at, the, at the crux of my practice about my insecurities of being a black, being seen as a black curator and being, um, the expectations of me to be black first Hmm. and maybe, you know, knowledgeable about something that's not black second, yeah, you know, yeah. it's really, uh, I mean, I, I admire my colleagues who can just, who feel really confident being a part of a conversation about race and art. And I always feel like I need to prove that it's not just about race, but sometimes it really just fucking is about race. You know, sometimes yeah. race is really the issue, but for me, you know, this is my own therapy issue. I, I want it to be about, I always need it to be about more or want to make sure people are seeing more. Yeah. I mean, well, that's the, that goes back to what I was saying earlier about being used to being centered is mm-hmm. that I think a lot of people, especially, um, let's say if you're a curator who's white or something like that, it's just a given that your show isn't about race. Right. And, and that's like the matter of factness of that. That's like what, that's what centering is. And that's what like, those are the hidden elements like by not by race, not being seen or thought of in it, that therein is like the white supremacy. It's mm-hmm. the default or it's a this or that. So it's like only when the show or the curator or the work speaks to something else, does it become like, well, I mean, why do they have to be so black all the time? <laughs> you know, what's so funny. I totally forgot this until right now, but when invisible man was opening, I I'd sent the press release out and the press release purposefully, skirts around issues of race mm-hmm. in a you know i don't ignore it but i really talk about i i hit each artist and what their practice is and art news released it as a must see mm-hmm. and in their synopsis they said all of the artists deal with race and identity or something along those lines i don't want to misquote but it was along it was had race and identity in it or mm-hmm. like identity artists that's what mm. they said identity artists and it was like two days before and we were installing and I was, you know, I hadn't slept and I was feeling really anxious and I got really upset. I can imagine. Well, yeah. Why? But to be fair, you to... know, Popel does make work about race and his identity. Of course. You know? But and, still. But I mean, but it's just, it was really just a great, ended up being a great talking point. I, and I actually wrote to them mm-hmm. and I know a lot of people there. And of course I appreciate them putting my show up but you know i wrote i was like thanks so much for the mention hey is there any way you could remove this line that calls them artists who make work about identity just the qualifier just, just the, qualifier. the qualifier i didn't mention it at all in my press release yeah. you know you make and then again there is the assumption that 
they are all black artists, so it must be about identity, you know, <laughs> but, um, they didn't remove it. And I'm actually glad they, I'm glad they didn't, you know, mm-hmm. it was almost, it was also a learning lesson for me. If people, people are going to interpret yeah, shows yeah, like that yeah. in a, in a way that it's not, you know, I can't fault them and there's not going to be a paradigm shift with my invisible man show. Right. You know, but, um, and they do make works about identity, but this show in particular, that line felt more like an assumption because I didn't mention it. Well, yeah. I mean, there's a, I don't know what you're, what you're curating about and what you're talking about and what you're doing are the, are these things that I, I imagine, 20 years from now we'll look back and there will be like a vocabulary word that we all share that that discusses the frustration about like this point in time when that was like i mean we're 25 years after like the identity art exhibition right Mm -hmm. and and that's still being applied to people whether or not the exhibition itself is contextualized it that way yeah and i think that's i think that that's an important distinction is that if the press release doesn't state that outright then it's really like whoever's writing its assumption or something and that assumption is probably not even necessarily that writer's own it's a larger social kind of like absorption that says like oh well this is a and it's like you said it's a push and pull that's Mm -hmm. so hard like well and i'm not asking you what the correct outcome is because clearly there isn't a correct the the frustration comes in that 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 even has to be like a thing mm-hmm. like i mean fuck chuck close but like if they did a chuck close show would they be like wheelchair bound you know artist chuck For real? close like no, face they blind wouldn't. face blind <laughs> paraplegic artist chuck close makes work about being in a wheelchair disgusting gross chuck close yeah that's why i just heard they just had him on fucking npr like on a show about face blindness and i was just like oh my god i, like, I swear to god and i might have heard something incorrectly but they were talking about him and i was like well, I guess they're kind of talking around it or something. And then it occurred to me as I like cooking dinner that I think he was one of the fucking guests. Oh, my God. And it was a show about face blindness and disability and how he like whenever. And I was just like, guys, <laughs> look, look, come on. <laughs> look at fucking Twitter once in a while or something. Like, he's, he's done. He's done. We're, we're it's done over. with Chuck Close. We're done but, with Chuck Close. <laughs> no. I know. But I don't know. Yeah. yeah. The push and pull is hard. And well, and it sucks because you have to like you have to think about every time you're fucking typing it you're typing a fucking press release up you have to consider a huge amount of people and how they're going to receive it for sure and feel like you're also accountable to to like a population that you're a part of population that you're not a part of whatever like what is a population i don't know i know and you can't make everyone happy i mean artists some artists of color are not happy with my curatorial practice that's fine and that's okay you know and maybe I don't know. You know, it's yeah, but nobody's happy with everybody's no one's happy with everything. practice. It's so true. it's not even like, I mean, it would be insane to think that you could please people. For sure. And also yeah. you operate within a system that has certain constraints. And oh, definitely. So there you it's go. It's not the like, Haynes gallery. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it took me a Sometimes. second. Cause like besides your last name, my first association with Haynes is the underwear. And of I was course. like, yeah, it's like the underwear gallery. And I was like, what the fuck does she mean? <laughs> I mean, that was my first response when I got, you know, the first um, question from somebody about why don't I do this or why don't I do that? And I was like, Hey, I'm trying to, this is my job. Yeah. I'm yeah. trying to eat also. Yeah. And I do what I can when I have moments of opportunity. Yeah. Well, you and seem to be doing quite a bit with the moments of opportunity that you're being given. Well, and I hope people, so. Thank and people you. are noticing that. And I think that that's, that's important. And that's like what it's just like before. It's like working 
inside of an industry that's white supremacist does not make you ebony a white supremacist but it's it's tough because it's like it's like the same thing with the capitalism thing i don't know yeah. but it's like i don't know you do what you can do and at the end of the day if you're like proud of the work that you're doing yeah. and you're highlighting and platforming the people whose work you think is interesting and it's stoking conversation mm-hmm. then like i don't know that's that's good work yeah because the other thing that you can do is you can really in not the satirical sense of the novel but you can really just sort of like blanket yourself in the invisibility and just kind of like move behind and be like i'm not gonna shake anything up or be like this or that or something so which i did for a long time i think yeah that i'm not saying yeah like of course you did i just mean i think that's probably the the default that many people resort to i feel like i would that i would definitely do that if put in a position like they're like i don't want to I'm too uncomfortable to like, I don't really want to be in the, you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, totally. That's me. Cause you (laughs) will, then you create accountability for yourself, which is fucking terrifying. Yeah. You know? And this is the first boss I've had really, who's been not always open, always, always Mm open-minded to things like this. And shoot the lobster has been really great and fun for providing another platform like that. So it's been really a combination of experience over time and having an opportunity with, you know a team like i have now to do things like this yeah it's pretty exciting um well yeah i mean good work i love the curatorial stuff that you do Uh oh thanks did you say uh oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) Uh because i'm about to blush i can feel it coming i just rubber stamped it which means it sucks (laughs) but um ebony thanks so much for coming by today thanks for having me we did it Yeah, yeah i'm really excited to finally have this completed i'm sorry that i'm sending you back out into the snow but that's okay yeah it doesn't g- look so bad out there no we're you're from canada and i'm from michigan it's like we were yeah. saying before we started like this is just what winter used this to be. is what it looks like every day in toronto <laughs> cool uh well ebony thank you so much thank you to everybody who's listening we'll see you next week times have changed our kids are getting worse They won't obey their parents, they just want to fart and curse. Should we blame the government or blame society? Or should we blame the images on TV? No! Blame Canada! Blame Canada! It seems that everything's gone wrong since Canada came along. Blame Canada! Blame Canada! We need to form a full assault! Don't blame yourself! For your son Stan He saw the darn cartoon And now he's off to join the clan And my boy Eric once Had my picture on his shelf But now when he sees me He tells me to f*** myself Blame Canada Blame Canada Because when Canada is gone There'll be no more Celine Dion Blame Canada Blame Canada They're not even a real country anyway and he could have been a doctor or a lawyer rich and true. Instead, he burned up like a piggy on the barbecue. Should we blame the nurses? Should we blame the fire? The doctors who were loud and too excited. No! Blame Canada! Blame Canada! With all their hockey hullabaloo and that bitch and Marie too. Blame Canada! Blame Canada! All I can say is I give all this Canada's fault. Everybody!